Which please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and the hangar in Montana. We are so glad that you are joining us uh, today for our message and for our study as well. And today, really, the message is going to be divided into three parts. And each of the parts is somewhat different from uh, each of the others. Uh, The first is about some opportunities that we have here as a church family because of some great things that God is doing in and through our church. And then part two, we're going to look as we continue our series on the book of Acts at Acts chapter 12 and the subject of prayer. And then part three, we're going to put into practice what we've learned uh, from Acts chapter 12. Now, the first opportunity that I'd like to talk about is with regard to a movie that was produced by some guys in our church, uh, Sean Svoboda and others, uh, filmed here on our campus with our people and uh, kind of starring Jarrett LeMaster, our young adult pastor, uh, Turnaround Jake. And I just find this highly appropriate. Uh, you know, this weekend, it is just something that has really uh, grieved my heart as the number one movie in America is this Fifty Shades of Grey, which is an attempt to mainstream violent sex. And the irony of it is, is that it came out in time for Valentine's Day. And to think that this is where we're at as a, as a nation, that we think this is a way to celebrate uh, Valentine's Day. And, you know, we've had movies like this before, but none that has been so mainstream, setting records uh, through the weekend, biggest February opening on Friday, uh, setting records in other categories throughout the weekend. And so I've never known a movie like this to be so mainstream, particularly promoting uh, something along the lines of violent sex and violent uh, pornography. But I... Uh, find it highly appropriate that the same uh, weekend in which this is opening across the nation um, uh, for Valentine's Day, that in 5,000 Walmarts across America, did you know there were 5,000 Walmarts in America from coast to coast and north to south and every nook and cranny of our nation in all 5,000 Walmarts, uh, Turnaround Jake just came out in all those Walmarts across the country and... Uh, and I, I went into a Walmart in Upland on Tuesday, just walked in to see if I could do it. And there it was just sitting on the shelf. And it was so awesome to be able to buy that and, and, and to take that home and, and encourage you to maybe buy it, give it to a friend or to somebody uh, that you'd like to share with. And you kind of got that natural in because you can say, hey, this was filmed on our church. And you can say our pastor's kitchen and living room are in this. You know, if you want to find out, you know, is he living like Jim Baker or not, you know, you can. You can just pull that out and find out what's going on there. And uh, so we're so excited about that. One of the things that I'm most excited about is that it is one of the clearest gospel presentations. I mean, Jarrett LeMaster, our young adult worship pastor, he gives one of the clearest uh, gospel presentations within that that I've ever seen in any uh, movie. And right now, I've never had you pray during a video clip, but I'm going to show uh, the latest trailer for it. It was picked up by Pure Flix, who also has the movie God's Not Dead that many of you saw in the theaters. And so they picked it up. They're not only running it through Walmart, but many other forms of dis- distribution this week. And so across the nation, as this comes out, let's just, as we watch this clip, let's be in prayer that God is going to use it in a powerful way. So let's watch this together. Jacob Zaker, the man. Word on the street is that you're up for the corner office. You got the biggest deal in the pipeline. You're engaged to the boss's niece. Zaker, 
How you doing, my boy? Mr. O'Malley, sir, how are you? Rich. And I'm getting richer because of you. <laughs> Jake, the FBI is after you. I don't have access to anything. I have no money. But it's not the end of the world. You've got to let this thing blow over. You still got Nancy. Jacob, we're through. Good to see you, Jacob. I haven't been back in like six years. A lot's changed. A big company shut its doors and put a lot of people out of work. It's just business. That's the way of the world. No, that's, that's how that's, it works that's, in the real world. your world. If you really want to help this town, you need to work on the local economy. Well, you can start by helping me down at the church. There's a lot of work to do. I just... Hey. Can I get some more cream? That's what you have to say to me? When I left, everything was fine. We agreed to be friends. Why'd you leave us here? You didn't want to come to L.A. You know, so maybe I thought that you didn't want to be with me anymore. I know you're not really into the Bible these days, but I hope you still know deep down that it's the truth. You got my attention. I'm listening, Lord. I've been greedy and selfish. Forgive me, Lord. I went back home, and I saw firsthand the damage that this company's done to my hometown. Do what we have to do. Doesn't make it right. I left this town for all the wrong reasons, and I became a person I don't ever want to become again. Lord, and I know you have a plan for my life. I'm ready for whatever you got. Whoever thought, yeah, I know, isn't that awesome? Awesome, awesome. Whoever thought that the old blue bus would be in a movie set, you know, or... Or our gym. When you walk into our old gym, do you ever think movie set? That's what that is. Crazy. But just awesome. And let's pray that God's going to use it in a great way. Another opportunity next Sunday. I am so excited. I'm going to be like a kid counting down the days till Christmas. Next Sunday morning, we have Gary Habermas with us. He is one of the foremost defenders of Christianity in the world today. Just a phenomenal uh, apologist uh, for the faith, of Christ, for the Christian faith. He's going to be talking on three different topics. So it's almost like a little miniature apologetics conference right here at our own campus. At the 830 service, we're, we're dealing with the three, three of the big things that our friends in our oikos that are left brain that they struggle with with regard to the faith. And the first one is, why does God allow suffering in the world? So he's going to deal with that at the 830 service. Then here at 945, he's going to talk about dealing with emotional doubt. And then he's going to have identical messages at 1111 here on our campus in Pomona. And then at 5 o'clock at the Claremont campus, the resurrection meets skepticism. That is the thing he is the most expert in and one of the great defenders of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. It is going to be a phenomenal day. I hope you will come and that you will bring somebody along with you. And then the third opportunity, would you pull out the Momentum brochure that you received there in your program? And today we're kind of having a mid-campaign report on our Momentum Breakthrough campaign. You know, I just got the numbers for 2014, for the last year. Uh, do you know that in the last year our church grew over 5% in size and, and attendance and involvement and, and, and in all other ways as well? And, and, you know, yeah, it's a phenomenal thing. I'll tell you why it's so phenomenal is because we're 145 years old. 
And it is unheard of for a church to continue to grow at that rate after 145 years. Movements, um, Christian schools, uh, Christian movements, uh, churches, Christian institutions, ministries, organizations, they tend to start out fast, then they slow, then they plateau, and then they begin to decline. That is just the pattern almost all the time. And for us to still, between year 144 and year 145, to grow over 5% is just like unheard of with regard to churches down through American history. And we just have such momentum as a church. We never should take it for granted. We should always thank God for it. We should always guard it vigilantly and uh, diligently. And so what we've had most recently, the last couple of years, is a campaign to refresh the older parts of the campus. And so the theme has been that small changes can bring about a big impact. If you open it up and turn to the community terrace that you'll see there and also the children's play yard and some improvements in the children's ministry area, uh, you'll see that our goal is by the end of the next five years to have uh, be ministering regularly to 7,000 regular attendees within our church. And if you add to that those in our community that we serve on a year on an annual basis in our food bank ministry that meets here on our campus, in clothing ministry, in the homeless ministry, in the furniture ministry, that number grows to almost 40,000 people ministered to directly. That's not even talking about our missionaries and foreign missions. We're just talking about local Locally, almost 40,000 people. Uh, that's our goal um, by the end of five years. And so God has just blessed in such a powerful way, and we'll pray that he will bless even more. And so our theme today is clearly seeing progress. And so as you came in, uh, inserted there in the brochure is this little magnifying glass. And I tell you, this is very helpful to me. Uh, I, I, I use reading glasses at home, but I'm too vain to bring them in the pulpit. So one of these days, you're just going to see me bring out the bookmark uh, to uh, read the Bible here or my outline. And so this is uh, just a little thing to remind us that we are clearly seeing progress. Uh, we are seeing it in three breakthrough areas. Number one is the community terrace. And I'm in the play yard uh, that's being built right now. And so it's kind of funny because today was supposed to be a groundbreaking ceremony, but things happen so fast, it is now a groundbroken celebration is what it is. Because if you look out there, that ground is already broken. So as soon as the service is done, I invite you out to the south parking lot, and in order to entice you out there, we're going to be serving ice cream out there. And, and let me just, you just say, what kind of a church serves ice cream at 11 o'clock in the morning? I'll tell you what kind of church. An awesome church is the kind of church that uh, serves that. Now, it gets even better, and, and maybe I'm dating myself here. And I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember these little cups with the wooden spoons. Do you remember these things? These are like the greatest. These are waiting for you right now out there. Okay, I can hardly wait. I have mine up here, and you know how they're always too hard? And so I'm letting mine thaw for the whole service, and I eat them in between service. I'm going to be so sugar-wired by the 11-11 service, you're just not going to imagine. So I invite you out that right after the service to get your ice cream and to see what God is doing through you. A second area of breakthrough is for every dollar given to debt reduction, we save 75 cents in interest 
So a dollar seventy-five impact for every dollar given, and so that almost doubles your dollar power uh, given to this campaign. And then, if we have enough after the community terrace, uh, we will proceed with work for the exteriors, for the E building, the B building, and the H building, and continue the momentum that God has given to us. Now, one final thing: if you look at the inside flap there, I just want to read this because Cheryl Gardner, who's our campaign chairman, has done such a beautiful job of summarizing these. Uh, items. We pray that you will play a part in this good work so PFB Purpose Church's momentum can break through and move ahead to God's glory. If you've already fulfilled your commitment to momentum, we want to just say thank you. And as your pastor, I want to say thank you. Your gift has made it possible to begin this important work. And, and we are just so grateful. I am personally so grateful. Now, if you've not yet made a commitment uh, to help us in this area, there's still an opportunity to do so. Maybe you fulfilled your commitment, like Kimberly and me, but God blessed us so much in the first year we fulfilled our commitment, and God blessed us so much that we made an additional commitment last year, 25% beyond that. And now we're hoping to do the same thing in 2015 as uh, God blesses. Or maybe you've come to our church within the last couple of years, and you'd like to join in this as well. I encourage you to pray about um, doing that. And then you'll see some creative ways you can be involved. Kimberly and I took advantage of these. Uh, you can see areas like stock gifts and other things like that. We were able to take care of some ways, some of these more creative ways uh, to give to the Momentum campaign as well. You'll see our mid-campaign update uh, over and above our regular giving. Uh, we've uh, already uh, pledged uh, almost a million and a half and given over a million dollars. And the more that we receive, the more we can do and the more momentum we will have for the future. So I invite you uh, to pray about that and consider that before the Lord. Now, would you look with me at your study outline? As we are continuing our series in the book of Acts entitled Rooted in Purpose. And uh, today we come to Acts chapter 12, uh, the astonishing power of prayer. Verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. This is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, his grandfather, was the one that tried to kill the baby Jesus by killing all the uh, boys under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem. Now, this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa. He was very good friends with the notorious Roman Emperor Caligula. And Caligula, who's who gave him his current territory there in Judea, as well as the title of king. Now, historians tell us that Herod Agrippa was a playboy when he was in Rome. But when he was back in Jerusalem, he became this champion of the law. And when he wanted to please his constituency. And one of the ways to do that is by killing Christians. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John. This is one of the original 12 disciples. Uh, James, he's the first one that's executed for his faith. He had him put to death with the sword. That means he beheaded him. Just like we're seeing in, with ISIS in this part of the world, uh, Christians being beheaded. I just, on the way to church this morning, I uh, heard on the radio that just yesterday, ISIS uh, beheaded, executed 20 Christ followers in Libya uh, by beheading them in the same way they've been doing for 2,000 years and Herod Agrippa did to James. He put him to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, that is, the Passover. Now, this is about 46 A.D. Jesus was killed about 33 A.D. So can you imagine Peter sitting in prison at the time of Passover, 
thinking back over the last 13 Passovers, 13 years before when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and there he sits in a prison waiting for his execution. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. Now there are two buts that we're going to focus on this morning. One is here in verse 5, and one is later on in verse 24. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter was kept in prison, (coughs) but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Uh, Part of our rooted program with over 500 people in this experience has been to spend a three-hour concerted time of prayer. And most of the rooted groups have already done it, but some are still doing it over the next week or so. And Pastor Greg told me how a week ago Saturday, what a thrill it was to see hundreds of people scattered all over our campus and every nook and cranny of our campus praying to God earnestly for three hours. That's a total of 1,500 hours of concerted prayer. How can God not bless us? How can we not continue momentum when you have 500 people devoting three hours to concerted prayer? It says Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. A couple of weeks ago, uh, between the 945 and 1111 service, some people came up to me and said that Izzy Valdivinos, uh, Israel Valdivinos and his wife uh, Susie, they were leaders in our young adult ministry years ago, and now they're in, in Colorado. And Izzy uh, was climbing with a friend from his church up one of the 14,000 feet uh, foot um, mountains there in Colorado, and they were completely prepared, but an unexpected snow blizzard came in, and they were lost. And the word came out, could we be in prayer uh, for them? The helicopters and the search and rescue were out searching for them because they'd been lost for a day or two. And, and we began to pray. We stopped the service, and God's people began to pray. And within a half an hour of our prayer, a helicopter spotted Izzy and his friend, and, and they were rescued. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. Izzy was lost on a mountain. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Uh, Herod doubled up his guard duty. Uh, Number one, he probably was a little nervous dealing with these Christians. He had had experience with them before and knew that they didn't stay dead and they didn't stay imprisoned. And so he knew he better double up the number of soldiers that was guarding him. Bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, And came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches 
and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Now, this is Mark who wrote the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And so they were having a prayer meeting at his mother's house where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, this next story right here is one of the funniest in the Bible. And as a matter of fact, I actually read some Bible scholar uh, this uh, past week that said this is probably a story that Christians told in a humorous way for generations to come. Uh, This is a story they probably told around campfires. Uh, Do you remember when? It probably stayed in the early church and they told it over and over again because it was so humorous. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, this next phrase is a tremendous encouragement to me because sometimes I will confess to you, my faith is so small. And I say, oh, I wish I was like the early church. I mean, they saw miracles and and they had had experience. They'd seen all the miracles of Jesus, some of them had. And then even after those that had come to Christ later that hadn't personally experienced the miracles of Jesus, they saw all these phenomenal miracles in the early days of the early church. Oh my goodness, those people had faith. But look at what happens here. A bunch of them were gathered together saying, oh God, get Peter out of prison. He shows up at the door and these great people of faith have this faith response. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Do do you ever do that? You spiritualize a prayer request? I don't think God can pull it up, but spiritually God can pull it off, you know. I don't think he can literally do this thing, but he can spiritually do this thing. You see, we believe that every Christian has a guardian angel. We we believe that we have angels that are assigned to guard over us. It talks about children having a guardian angel. We believe in Scripture that it teaches that we have one as well. And there was this belief in the early church. We don't know if it's true or not, but it's just a belief that they held that your guardian angel looked like you. And so if you see a bald angel walking around, that's mine, okay? Uh, (laughs) A few years back, true story, this absolute true story, a young couple was walking on the campus with, uh, I can't remember, their little boy or their little girl. They were walking across campus, and they see me, and the little boy or the little girl goes, look, Mom and Dad, it's Dr. Phil. They, they thought that I, was, that I was Dr. Phil. So if you see an angel that looks like Dr. Phil or like Pastor Glenn, that's one of ours, okay. It must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, these great people of tremendous faith, they were, what's the next word? You tell me. Astonished. Can you believe it? We had a prayer meeting. God actually did what we asked for. Who would have thunk? Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James. Now, this is not obviously the James who's just been executed, one of the disciples. This is James, the brother or the half-brother of Jesus. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter because there was Roman law that if you're assigned to guard somebody and they escape, you have to have done to you what was going to be done to the prisoner. And so there was no small commotion. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. 
Now, there's a PS to this story. And it's very similar to a secular source. Jewish historian Josephus writes about a very uh, similar incident. And so they're very close and parallel in the telling of them. And so it's a confirmation from outside the Bible of this biblical event. And so at the beginning of the story, Peter's kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now at the end of our story, Peter gets out of prison. And what happens to the one who had imprisoned him? that Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted flattery because they wanted to get him on their side, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, for those of you that are into medical detail, and for any junior hires who might be here, here's what that means. Luke's reference to worms suggests an infection by intestinal roundworms. The Latin term is Ascaris lumpricoides, which grow as long as 10 to 16 inches and feed on the nutrient fluids in the intestines. Bunches of roundworms can obstruct the intestines, causing severe pain, copious vomiting of worms, and death. So now that I woke up the junior hires and everybody else included, uh, that's what happened to him. Peter was kept in prison, but the church earnestly prayed. Peter is released from prison. His persecutor dies instead of Peter. And it says in verse 24, here's our second but, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Can I confess to you, I needed to see that verse this week. I don't want to be melodramatic. But I really believe that with this movie, mainstreaming, violent pornography, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, I think that America as a country has passed yet another mile marker in her ongoing walk away from God. And I know we've seen these before, but never to this extent, never the number one movie in America, never setting records day after day for this particular weekend and for this type. We've just never seen it this widespread. And so it grieves us, doesn't it? It makes us worry for our nation. Um, Ruth Graham once said that If God doesn't judge America, he's got to personally apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We just go mile marker after mile marker. We're kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. But the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Time magazine wrote about Fifty Shades of Grey, and it said, In the early 21st century, ardor is a rare commodity. The stimulation buffet is too abundant for people to develop an appetite for any one dish. To stoke the fires, 50 shades venture deep into the sexual hinterlands of bondage, sadomasochism, and female degradation. And this 
is the number one movie in America this weekend. It reminds me of what was written in God's Word 2,000 years ago in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, lest we get too discouraged, it may surprise you that we've had worse times in American history. You say, what, Glenn? Nothing's as bad as today. Well, in some ways that's true, but in some ways it is not true. I've read this to you before, but let me just remind you of it because we find it encouraging as America passes these certain mile markers in their march away from God. It might surprise you to know that possibly the greatest spiritual slump in our American history was right before the American Revolution. You say, Glenn, how can that be because of the godly men and women that wrote things like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the, and the Articles of, of Statehood for the 12, 13 colonies as they were formed. And when you read those documents, you read, you read about such godly people and what they put into those documents. But that was the time of the American Revolution. I'm talking about 30 or 40 years before that. Alcohol abuse was rampant. Out of 5 million Americans, 300,000 were alcoholics and 15,000 died from alcoholism every year. Crime was increasing. For the first time in American history, women were afraid to go out on the streets alone at night. Christianity was non-existent in the schools of higher education. Historians tell us that at Harvard, there were zero Christians, not a Christ follower to be found on all the student body of, of Harvard. Um, at Princeton, only two uh, were followers of Christ, and only five of the members of the student body were not members of what was called the filthy speech movement. Uh, Williams College held mock communions. Dartmouth held anti-Christian plays. 
Christians on these campuses met in secret like you would in a Muslim or a communist country. The churches were in terrible shape. The Methodists were shrinking. The Baptists were in their worst time. The Congregationalists in New England were dying. They said in one church, 16 years had gone by without a single young person coming to that church. Lutherans considered merging with the Episcopalians. Leaders of the Episcopalians in New York had gone so long without confirming anyone that he left the ministry and took another job. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote to the Bishop of Virginia that Christianity was so far gone that it would never come back. The French atheist Voltaire predicted that in 30 years Christianity would be non-existent. Church historian Kenneth Scott Latterett says that the church's back was against the wall. And then the church began to pray. Young pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards evidently didn't get the memo that you're supposed to keep the names of your book, titles, and your sermons brief. Here's the title to his sermon that was made into a book that was passed around the colonies, the early colonies of the Americans. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the extension of Christ's kingdom. And with that mouthful of a title to a book, launched the greatest revival in American history. It's called The Great Awakening of 1740. Historians tell us that by the year 1800, there was a complete turnaround in American culture. Thousands upon thousands came to Christ. 600 Christian universities were formed practically overnight. It launched the greatest missionary movement in all of world history. It completely changed the face of American history and of world history. And it's all began because the church was earnestly praying. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. America was in its deepest moral slump, but the church was earnestly praying. Uh, tonight we finish up our series on sticky faith, and if there's ever a time when we need to have the gospel of Jesus Christ sticky so that it sticks to the next generation, it is now. If there's ever a time when we need to be willing to change to reach the new generation, we need to give, we need to share Christ, we need to take the same old gospel and, and don't change one iota of it, but present it in fresh ways and, and maybe call things by new names, but the same thing the gospel of Christ, but, but uh, approach things in a way that will connect with the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, until Jesus comes back. If we ever need to be open to change and to giving and to prayer and to sacrifice and sharing our faith and serving, it is now. Now's the time to make our faith sticky. Now's the time to continue our momentum. Now is the time for the church to pray. If you turn to the next page of your study outline, I invite you to pray silently with me as I guide you through these seven different areas. The, third, the theme is that the church was earnestly praying to God. Would you begin by praying for our nation? 
Let's pray for our nation. Let's cry out to God for this nation that we love so very much. Let's pray that God will call the hearts of our fellow citizens back to the things of God once again. Let's pray for our church that we will always defend every last jot and tittle of God's word, but that we will look for ways to be sticky generation to generation until Christ returns, that we will see God continue the momentum that we have seen for the last 145 years to as many years in the future as is necessary until Christ returns. Pray for your spouse, or if you're single, your best friend or your roommate, uh, if you're a student. Pray for that um, key person in your life right now. Pray that God will work in their life as he works in yours. Pray for your children and your grandchildren. Bring their names up before the Lord. Let's pray for the children and young adults of our church. Let's bring them before the Lord. Let's pray for the children and young adults of our community. Let's pray for the children and young adults of Pomona and whatever city you live in, whatever community you live in right now, bring that up before the Lord as well. Finally, let's pray for persecuted Christians around the world. Let's pray particularly for those in the Middle East. As ISIS expands its boundaries, let's pray for Christians that are caught in that and in the process are losing their lives and facing persecution. Let's pray for persecuted Christians all around the world. But let's particularly pray for followers of Christ in the Middle East who are facing such a severe time of crisis and persecution. All these things we pray together now as a church and all Christ's church said together, amen.